Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are here to recap a big weekend in Seattle sports. A lot of ups, some downs, some downs for my fantasy teams, particularly this morning. But ends in a positive note with the Seattle Seahawks, comfortably arms lengthening the Carolina Panthers after trailing at halftime. Uh, Tristan, we're doing the inverse of last week's pod. I, I was obviously at Saturday night's UW game, but you this time attended the two Seattle football sporty events. What were your takeaways from the Seahawks Panthers game that you decided you wanted to podcast after? We could not be more back. Let's freaking go. I understand it's the Carolina Panthers, but being in that stadium today, I have to tell you, it was the closest it felt to the classic era, Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson era of Seahawks football that it has felt in four years, five years, something like that. It was a different atmosphere inside that stadium today than it has been in so long. It was electric. It was kind of wild. And I think Pete, I think Pete might have figured it out with this team. I think he might have himself a team that he's excited about and a team that can do the things that Pete Carroll wants to do positive in the positive way on the field. And let me just say, we've sat here for multiple seasons in a row and we have seen mediocre team after mediocre team come into our house and kick the Seahawks asses. And true. for once, that finally didn't happen. It felt like there was an atmosphere at the stadium for the first time similar to what we saw last night at the Husky game we'll talk about that in a second but this was you saw the false starts that was something that didn't happen in so long the Panthers were rattled in this game because of crowd noise right there was an energy in the stadium you have the two-point conversion that happened and the hits on defense that there was there was something a little bit magical so I I I, I was sitting there and I was just taking it all in the 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 energy that was happening at this game and i said to you we have to emergency pod because there were a few different things that i was paying attention to in the game we can talk about overall i don't i don't think i don't think there were enough great moments that we need to like go through piece by piece of the game i don't think so either i did not prepare for that but there were a few things that i was paying attention to going into this game i told you beforehand that i was going to watch defensively devin witherspoon every single snap after you asked me what jersey number he was. I No, I wasn't asking. I was confirming. Confirming that I was right. Just in case. I, I could have looked it up. Look, we're just talking. Anyway. I said that I was going to watch Dev Devin Witherspoon on every single snap of the game. And that's what I did. I said, I have a real life in person. Not you nerds on the internet. This is a real life all 22 looking down on the game. Well, watch the games. And... You have to watch the to get the all twenty two. You have to watch the games from the game. Watch all of them, nerds. Be there. But looking down on Devin Witherspoon and and how the Panthers were trying to attack him, I think early on they went into this with a game plan to actually go at Devin Witherspoon. I think that was Frank Reich's. You said you liked him as a coach. I questionable, but you said you liked Frank Reich as a coach in in our preview podcast. And I think he went into this game saying to himself, "Not Artie Burns." Not Mike Jackson, not Trey Brown, who unfortunately was hurt during the game. Devin Witherspoon is the one who I'm going to target here. 
and he could not have been more wrong. What I saw from watching Devin Witherspoon in this game, because I, I, you know, he's the fifth pick in the draft, right? He's somebody who you want to see stand out. I told Chris early on, who I was with, that Devin Witherspoon was going to make a big play in this one. He didn't necessarily do that. But what Devin Witherspoon did was he was felt throughout the game. And I think the thing, the piece about Devin Witherspoon, and people have talked so much about Jalen fucking Carter and the Seahawks, I guarantee you, that the Seahawks saw Devin Witherspoon and they did not think about Jalen Carter again. You talk about players, who do the Seahawks love? They love players who are physical, who are hard hitters, who are aggressive fast and don't take plays off. And that is not Jalen Carter to me. Whether Jalen Carter makes a big play every once in a while or not is not necessarily what the Seahawks are looking for. What they saw in Devin Witherspoon was the second coming of Richard Sherman. And he's a little bit that but he's also... I, think, I thought they saw Enrique Woolen, the second coming of Richard Sherman. He's also a little bit more physical. No, Richard Sherman, we talked about this, was an underrated tackler. And... Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not saying... Yeah, but but the whole Reek Woolen story still is much more Richard Sherman. But how they play on the field. Devin Witherspoon is a fucking badass out there. He is clearly talking on every single play. He is motioning constantly. He has his hands up. Devin Witherspoon is felt on the field in his second NFL game. And he's cleaning up some plays as well with some of his tackles. He was good in coverage. He got picked on. He maybe gave up one or two completions early from there. There's the bullshit pass interference that definitely shouldn't have been called. Uh, but that's just, that's the type of play that you give up in the same way that the Seahawks would have given that up for Sherm, right? Where it's like, if you want to play tight, you're going to be with a receiver. You know that you're going to get some penalties every once in a while, but I'd rather have that than you be a mile away from them. So that was the kind of penalty that they got. Jackson Bevins uh, on the Cigar Thoughts podcast, Twitter at, at Cigar Thoughts had the stats. Witherspoon targeted 11 times, allowed three catches for 19 yards, two pass breakups, gave up one first down. That's It's right there. What, what he did on the field, and even from that corner spot, they started looking the other direction completely away from him. And obviously with Trey Brown being injured, the Seahawks are down pretty deep in depth as far as cornerbacks go, right? So... It made sense why they were doing that, but the the way that he played the game, it was so clear to me that if you, I know there is an exercise on a podcast redoing the NFL draft very early. If you redid this NFL draft, the Seahawks would land on Devin Witherspoon a hundred times out of a hundred because there has never been a more Seahawksy player out there. He moves at a different speed. He hits at a different speed. I was thinking about him being at the University of Illinois and pronounced in the Sufjan way. Uh, <laughs> come, on, come on, feel the Illinois. I cannot imagine a player like that playing. I know he's in the Big Ten, but at the University of Illinois, who is just so present on every single play, moving at a different speed than the rest of the defense, how must, much he must have popped on that tape compared to other players. Because when he's with the Seahawks in the NFL, out there in the same field with Bobby Wagner, with Quandre Diggs, with Devin Bush, a lot of first-round picks alongside him as well, he looks different than those players, and he moves differently than those players. So I was so excited about Devin Witherspoon in his second-ever start. Okay. Did you want to continue on this take or talk a little more on Witherspoon? The other thing I was looking at, I didn't realize this is what I was looking at. We talked about the Big Ten. You know, we're in Big Ten country right now. 
what the Seahawks have going in the backfield. I was so excited about Zach Charbonnet in the preseason when they drafted Zach Charbonnet. There are people out there who say that running backs don't matter, but I was excited about Charbonnet. And I think back, you see a couple of Big Ten players that they have in the backfield right now, and I think back to a classic Big Ten tandem, Thunder and Lightning. Reggie Bush and Lendale White. <laughs> and you can't not be reminded of those two players or that 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 classic, what you're looking for in a backfield. I think for the first time in Seahawks history, they have it in a way that Pete is so excited about. Seeing and, how they... Including when they had Lendale White. <laughs> no, that was... They did not have Big Ten <laughs> Lendale White. But... <laughs> Is Pete Carroll the best coach in Big Ten history? <laughs> Many are asking. But that, that tandem that they have with how differently those two players play football and what that is throwing at a defense, they're both in this zone of, we know that running backs, their greatest value. You said that they peak, I think if I recall correctly, when they're 12. So we're as a, little, a little older than that. I think it was like 19. 19? Okay. Running backs peak at 19, so they haven't faded too far down as far as value goes. They're both young. They are both fast. Charbonnet has the physicality. I mean, you saw that play. I think there was a, a, a who was it? Ian Eagle, right? On the broadcast. I saw the tweet of it. Zach Charbonnet says, get off me! And that Charbonnet play that he had at the goal line, where he just pushed the defender back three feet and was standing... That was incredible, and to see that alongside the home run hitting power of Ken Walker, who they also incorporated in the passing game very effectively today as well. I think they figured out, we can't just use Ken Walker exactly like a normal running back. There's some of that, but you have to you have to get Ken Walker into space sometimes, and they did such a good job of that as well on screen pass or the wheel route down the field where he turns around and catches it. Seeing those two running backs together is unlike anything that Pete Carroll has ever had with this Seahawks team. Well, still, when they tried to run a screen pass, it got completely blown up because Stone Forsyth got pushed into the backfield by Brian Firth. So I don't know about screen pass, although they did throw it like kind the one of a where swing he had pass. The spin, the spin move. I don't. I don't know where they initially called a hold and then waved off the hold. I don't think that was a screen, was it? I don't know. Maybe it was. Uh, there was a play also to Tyler Lockett where they got a receiver out in front of him. I don't think it was technically a screen, but it kind of functioned that way and it actually worked. Yes. So that was exciting. Uh, the last piece was just the, the crowd in the atmosphere. I mentioned it early. The false starts that Carolina had. I mean, we're talking eight, like... Eight false starts, the most by any team in a game since 2011, according to wow. ESPN's stats and information. It's kind of wild that it's not even close to the all-time record at whatever you want to call that field, what is now which, Lumen Field. Which was 11 against the Giants in the 2005 Jay Feely game, as we recall it. But the crowd the crowd definitely gets into that sort of thing. It, it was a, a, a thing that was so known for the Seattle crowd and faded away a little bit. So having that a, creep back a, in. A little bit? Ha having that, well, I mean, the crowd in general. Having that energy, again, people who weren't standing early on, weren't cheering as loud, they started cheering louder every single time. And I think there's an identity building around this team. There was a little bit of a pass rush. Jay Reed being back on the field. Jay Reed, like the way that he loves all of those false starts where he's running 10 yards down the field to celebrate, like that is something, having that Jaron Reed energy here in Seattle, it was something that I think we've missed for multiple years, and it he made a difference in this game. 
I don't know if we quite got to this on last week's pod. Definitely what I was thinking when I was at Ford Field last Sunday was the Lions fans are who the Seahawks fans, A, think they are, and B, used to be. Because they're at the start of this run. They're excited, and there aren't a lot of visiting fans in a way that, you know, I think in 2012 and 2013, 100% was the case in a way that it hasn't been the last few years where this home field advantage, as you talked about, has eroded pretty dramatically to the point where the Seahawks have typically been better on the road yes. over a smaller sample size. I'm I'm curious whether there was an element of just like the Detroit fans, obviously not most Seahawks fans were there and experienced it, but like seeing how loud Detroit was last week. And then also just how much of it do you think was the fact that this was a literally a throwback to that era with the celebration, the 10 year anniversary of the Super Bowl team, having all those players here. It def- definitely did not hurt having those players in the house for the game that to me felt most like that era. Also, maybe are there no Carolina Panthers fans? It's the, I don't think it's about the opposing fans, though. I think it is about the, I think it starts with the team, and I think people feel it from the team. And they didn't play amazing, but this was the kind of game that last year the Seahawks team lost. Literally. They lost to that fucking Carolina Panthers team. They lost to all the NFC South teams. This is their first win over wow, an NFC South team until it, it, since at least 2021. I don't know what the full losing streak was. And I, I get it. It's the Carolina Panthers, but ultimately, that's not that bad of a team. It, well, it's not... we, we got to talk. We haven't talked about it. when we did the podcast, we were proving it as if Bryce Young was going to be a quarterback for the Panthers. And then the very next morning, it comes out that Bryce Young is missing practice. And all of a sudden, it becomes progressively more likely that Andy Dalton was going to start at quarterback. And we were terrified. Oh, and we were rightfully terrified. I mean, Andy Dalton definitely did some things against the Seahawks defense that people do. But he, he avoided all turnovers. He found Adam Thielen a, a lot of times across the middle of the field, a lot of third downs given up. There was still some Seahawks stuff happening here, but ultimately the defense functioned mostly as it should function. And the offense, as we talked about at the beginning of the season, was good enough that they just didn't have enough to keep up with it. And I, I think those pieces were it. But like that Carolina team with Andy Dalton at quarterback is probably around a 500 team. The I, I don't think they're a playoff team, but they're definitely not bad. And I think people are underrating the Panthers just a little bit here early on. You know, they were close with a good Saints team uh, in week two and then also close to the Falcons. And again, just it doesn't matter. We don't need to worry about whether the, the, the win is good or bad or whatever. But they lost to Andy Dalton last year. They lost at home to these Carolina Panthers last year. I was there to play the Las Vegas Raiders and lose that game. So seeing all of those games in a row, it, there should have been something that was, it should have been raising our sniff test because we've seen that for multiple years in a row now. The, winning this game is a much bigger deal than people might realize. So I think all of those things in general, where I said we had to do an emergency pod because this felt different. It was a different atmosphere. For the first time, I, I am excited about the Seahawks. I think, let's say, maybe since they beat the Chargers on the road last year, this is the first time that I said, this team is good, and they have an attitude, and they have they have, they, they have a, uh, a personality in a way that I don't think the Seahawks did for quite a while. Gino in that game. I mean, Gino played incredible across the game, aside from the one bad pick. Like, they are a different team. They've moved out of the shadow of Russell Wilson, and they have a new personality of their own. And it's still it's still similar. It's still that Pete Carroll thing. But I think this team is pretty exciting.
Yeah, I mean, I think to go back to your original point, this was one of the most Pete Carroll positive performances the Seahawks have had but they in a ran long a period of time. a lot of play action. They definitely learned something about that Rams game. They they ran the good offense. Again, a lot of play action, as you mentioned. I think, so there are, like, you talk about the veteran quarterbacks against the Seahawks, and there are two types of veteran quarterbacks against the Seahawks games. There's the one where they just pick them apart, like Matthew Stafford did in week one. And then there's also the game where, like this one, Andy Dalton threw for 361 yards, which again, Andy Dalton threw for 361 yards, but Andy Dalton threw 58 passes in this game. It was 6.2 yards per attempt. It was other than the coverage bust, which, you know, probably was related to to Mike Jackson, who, uh, you know, was came into this game in relief with the Trey Brown injury. There wasn't a lot of you know, it was a very meticulous and the Seahawks were able to bend but not break at a lot of points during this game. Obviously, they score a touchdown late with, you know, the game basically out of hand. But the Seahawks averaged a yard per play more than Carolina. Yes. And they won this game comfortably, despite the fact that A, they lost the turnover battle and B, they were three of 13 on third down. Old Carolina was 10 of 19. I mean, the things that Pete Carroll was talking about, they weren't good enough after the game. Third downs, which is not a new thing. Red zone, those are the least repeatable of the skills. The stuff that they did well is the most repeatable of the things. So that, to me, is what's particularly exciting about this performance. And I also want to shout out someone who hasn't been mentioned yet. I mean, we've only talked briefly about Gino because you sort of just, these are the parts of the team that we understand are going to be good. TK Metcalf, the combination between him and Gino Smith was so awesome in this game. Every time he targeted DK Metcalf, it felt like good things were going to happen. Uh, it was six of eight completions for 112 yards in this one. Beautiful. Also, I mean, we haven't mentioned Jake Bobo scored a touchdown. And then, then the Bobo touchdown. That was when things got really great. And then I the two-point conversion. It wasn't really a big Tyler Lockett game, but he had that moment. That play, th- there's, there's two parts where I think people are both overselling the two-point conversion and underselling the two-point conversion, which number one, I get it. We're calling it the the Russell Wilson to Luke Wilson remix or whatever. The same. It was an incredible play by Geno Smith to, to get the pass off. Most importantly, more importantly than probably the Luke Wilson catch, though, Tyler Lockett coming up with that catch was incredible. Yes. And that was such an amazing individual play by Tyler Lockett that I don't think that should be lost in the mix. And, but also... Let's not let's not start comparing it to one of the most important plays in Seahawks history. Like this was still to put the Seahawks up three scores of the Panthers in week three. That that's the one piece where I'm like, let's let's just remain calm here because that play was different than this one. But last year against the Panthers, their leading rusher was Travis Homer at nine carries for 26 yards. Tony Jones Jr., who evidently wasn't on the, was on the team last year, I remember him only playing for the Saints, was at one for two. Marquise Goodwin was at one for negative two. Like, they did not run the ball last year. And meanwhile, the Panthers, their stats don't look amazing, but like Chuba Hubbard, who did absolutely nothing today, was at 14 for 74 against them. They stopped the run. They didn't do awful against the pass. And there were some moments that, I mean, it was third down conversions. And again, the, the pass interference that there was a busted, there was a busted coverage too, a busted play where you're just like, you basically just throw it out. You know, you have a young secondary, you have a secondary that hasn't played together that much. If you have a busted play touchdown, that is whatever. That's not a process issue. That is, that is just, it's a mistake. So I, again, I was feeling great about it. Huge big 10 game. 
with the Bobo touchdown as well. Wow. Uh, Didn't think about it. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I felt, I feel best about the Seahawks that I have felt considering that they, wow, we lost by 17 points to the Rams in week one, considering that we are two weeks removed from a 30 to 13 loss to the Rams. I am shocked at how good I'm feeling about this team and how I think both in the present and into the future, I think that there is something very, very interesting building here. Yeah, I hope that's the case. Uh, they will be back at it on Monday Night Football against the Giants a week, uh, eight days from now. Uh, we will obviously preview that along with the rest of the week to come on our regularly weekly pot, regular weekly podcast, which will be a little later this week on Thursday. Could you feel that, by the way, and being at home, could you feel that the stadium seemed different than it was a year ago? I mean, mostly from the false starts. Like, I don't I mean, know that, that you that necessarily was a huge part of it. can tell it from the sound mix. I mean, that was what I was curious to ask you after this game was like, look, was the crowd legitimately a factor? I mean, do you... there were times that you could you could see when the players can't hear. Yeah, I mean, and early in the game, they talked about, you know, the the Panthers preparing for the noise. And I was like, really, really? And Seattle, the were, they pre- were they preparing to play in 2016 as yeah, well? Did they have a time machine? So I've. If we're back, that's that's huge. That's very exciting news. Also, the Seahawks won a game where it rained. Uh, the, I would say the rain was very minimal. Very minimal. It, it rained a bit, and the quarter, the quarterback play was was strong as ever. So that was that was nice to see. That's encouraging. All right, should we talk about the down of this weekend? Oh, the Texas Rangers at this point treat the Seattle Mariners. Like the Mariners treat the A's. In fact, they have performed much better this season, the Rangers. They lost four times to the A's. We'll look this up. And they are now 8-1 and one against the Mariners this season after completing a three-game sweep in Arlington to move into dominant position in the ALS. The only good news here for the Mariners, and this is a big one, is that we're lifelong Kansas City Royals fans, and they swept the Houston Astros. The Mariners did not lose any ground against the Astros. Heading the Kansas into this City Royals season. treat the Houston Astros <laughs> the way the Mariners treat the A's. The Mariners' playoff odds haven't gone down as much as they probably should have. Houston now at 60%. Mariners at 44.5%. Uh, Toronto and Texas close to 100% per fan graphs. So this really makes this an enormous series coming up in Seattle starting on Monday night. Who who does Toronto play this week, by the way? Let me look this up. Uh, yeah, I do not know that information off the top of my head. The Rangers also not not a particularly different, difficult schedule this weekend, this early this week before they head into Seattle to close out the regular season over the weekend. So the Mariners definitely have the worst of things from the schedule. I mean, the Blue the Blue Jays have three against the Yankees and three against Tampa Bay. So mm-hmm. those are all lose. I mean, Garrett Cole's pitching on Wednesday. Like these are all losable games, depending on. Yeah, but they I, just have a two and a half game cushion now over the Mariners. I understand that, and they also don't. I don't think that the well, the Rays are still competing with the Orioles, right? I believe they're. Let me look yes, at that. They're two and a half back. So. There's a chance that it could matter. The Rays could could need to win. It's not like they're not going to be, you know, NBA style sitting players or something. So yeah, I mean they may be managing their can rotation by that point. 
uh, yeah, it was bad. I, I guess if I had to look for any sort of silver lining in the series, which you don't have to because silver linings don't exist when there's seven games left in the season, but if you have to look for any, the Mariners definitely fought back considering that they had an eight-run... No, they weren't down eight today, but they had an eight-run deficit to begin the series and I think a five-run deficit today. They got themselves back into these games more than I would have anticipated. So the bats came alive a little bit. And they just didn't have, I mean, like the Julio double hitting off the wall. That's really what we're talking about is it's a totally different game. If that ball's a little bit slower or if it caroms off the wall slightly differently. I mean, ultimately, the Mariners probably still would have lost, but it just would have been nice to have had a chance. And then JP scores. Uh, so, so they had some very untimely hitting or even on Friday night, Ty France hitting a ball pretty hard or even Canzone's last out where it's, if that gets by the first baseman where it's a tie ball game again. So there was a lot of, unfortunately not timely hitting, but as you've talked about for these next seven games, they have it set up that four out of the seven, either Luis Castillo or George Kirby likely will be pitching. And that is a very, very good place to be. We don't know the exact number that they need to win or whatever, but it feels like they are giving themselves the best possible chance in those games. And it, it again, the, the, the time is shrinking and their window for losing games is shrinking. They basically need to, they need to at least win two of three from the Astros. They might need to sweep the Astros and they need to play well against the Rangers. Well, if we're going to talk about teams that could potentially be, have clinched and not be needing to win, the Rangers, frankly, at this point, could be at some point during that series, you know, if they win the opener of that series, could clinch the division. It's not inconceivable now. Because they're three games up on the Mariners, have the tiebreaker, two and a half up on the Astros, and obviously would increase that if the Astros took two out of three. They're, they're in uh, Anaheim the next three days to play the Angels. Whatever is left of the Angels at this point, that is. But yeah, uh Still a, a disappointing weekend, to say the least, for the Mariners. So, anything else on them? Not really. All right, let's talk about the Huskies. Because the Huskies don't need to be back, but they can be, I don't know if I want to say better than ever, but just a machine offensively at this point. And, and in other phases of the game on Saturday, we arrived late to Husky Stadium. And by the time we made it to our seats, the Huskies had not run an offensive play and had scored 14 points. Did you have a particular Huskies take? Uh, I think they're really good. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, it's really hard not to look forward with this team. And I think we need to try to just take it game by game. But we'll talk this weekend about going to Arizona. Fortunately, it's not a day game. I... We have not seen the Huskies. It's been a long time since we've seen them not be almost perfect offensively. And we're talking about they've beaten some pretty good teams in that time period. And I think they're probably better this year than they were last year. It feels like the offense is running at, at a level where they can find open receivers. The receivers are at a level that are up there probably with the best in Husky history. I think it's pretty fair to say that with with where he's at right now, Michael Penix is probably the best quarterback in University of Washington history. And that trio 
plus maybe more of Jalen Polk, Jalen McMillan, and Roma Dunze is really unparalleled. We're talking about a team that had both Dante Pettis and John Ross on the roster at once. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the discussion over best quarterback in Husky history probably has to wait till the end of the season. What I would definitely say at this point is nobody in Husky history has played quarterback for an extended period of time as well as Michael Penix Jr. is right now and has been dating back to last season. And it's interesting because you know we, we've, we've talked about this briefly on the pod. Last year's QBR wasn't actually very good. It was, I think, third among Pac-12 quarterbacks, maybe even fourth. He might have been behind Cam Rising in addition to Bo Nix and Caleb Williams. He is number one this year. Huskies number one in FBI offensive efficiency. Like, they are actually playing at a higher level than last season, despite how high they set the bar. And that is pretty remarkable. And it's just it's just so much fun, man. It is really, I talked about this last week on the pod. It is really fun to watch. Uh, we had a perfect vantage point for the touchdown to Roma Dunze at the end of the first half on Saturday night, where Penix sails it out there. Adunze has to make an adjustment midair because he's kind of cutting it towards the middle of the field instead has to head towards the sideline and then boom it just you know perfectly in the bread basket for a touchdown uh that completed I believe that was their it was the most points ever scored against Cal and a half at 45 points completed that scoring and it was just it was just great it's great yeah I mean that's what was the last year at Cal I mean they they beat Cal 28-21 last year. Yeah, it's great <laughs> you know? that was on the road against probably what was better Cal. Again, probably a better Cal team. Still, this is not really comparable what they did. They were almost up. Yeah. I mean, before we entered the stadium, they were up by more points than they beat Cal last year. Well, uh, by the time we entered the stadium, it was down to 14-7 because Cal had scored a touchdown by that point. I, I guess that's true. Right after we were there. But like, I mean, Michael Penix this year, he was over 300 yards, right? He was at 306, I want to say. Yeah, it was only those defensive and and uh, special teams touchdowns that limited his yardage total and touchdowns in this one. So this season against Cal, I mean, I don't have they lost significant defensive talent? This is still a good Cal defensive team, right? I mean, they came in rated higher in FPI efficiency defensively than they did last season. He... So Michael Penix was over, over 300 yards last year. He got to 374 and it took him 51 attempts to do so this year. Michael Penix was at 304 on 25 attempts. That is a wildly different game between yeah. Michael Penix this year and last year. So I, unless Cal is significantly worse defensively than they were, that game is it is showing marked improvement. And again, the home versus road thing, but like we've seen Michael Penix on the road. And it... <laughs> it's gone pretty well lately, other than other than in hot weather conditions. And he didn't even necessarily have a perfect game, right? Like Michael Penix can somehow be 19 of 25, 19 for 25 with 304 yards and four touchdowns. And you're like, there's a few things he could have done better in that game. Uh, it is really incredible to see the the high level that he's operating that offense at. And from our vantage point in the end zone, just looking down the field and seeing wide open receiver and then seeing Michael Penix see the wide open receiver, or even throwing players open. Some of the tosses that he's making are I from our our lifespan. I don't necessarily I don't remember Warren Moon as a UW quarterback, 
Sunny Six Killer. But I mean, you weren't alive for Warren Moody's shoot up court effect, to be exactly. clear. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Dating back into mid 90s, Brock Heward, Marcus Tuiasa Sopo, uh, uh, Cody Pickett, Jake Browning, Jake Locker, all of these quarterbacks. Keith Price. Keith Price. There's I, I would also include would for me the you know the championship team the Brunel Hobart era is certainly a memory for me as well and like you know those quarterbacks put up very impressive numbers obviously the team was completely dominant but they didn't need to do as much like quarterback play wasn't as central to those teams but th- there is nobody who I would take over you know we've watched a lot of quarterbacks in a row who've been drafted high who have played in the NFL right we saw the entire Jacob Eason tenure who recruited highly. Michael Penix is doing different things than every single one of those quarterbacks did at UW. And with this offense and those receivers, it is it is pretty shocking just how good they are. And receiving the first number one vote by the AP in 26 years, I believe it is, for the University of Washington. It was 27. 20, 27 years. I mean... Oh, no, it was 26. Yeah, you're right. The... It doesn't feel... It's not like some person was totally out of line. You could see what has happened mm-hmm. on the field this they're, year. and They are now number one on there. in FBI efficiency. They're not number one in FBI because their their preseason prior was pretty low. But yeah, no, it's... And, and I don't know that I would put them as the number one team in the country, but it's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. And again, we'll, we'll preview Arizona State this weekend. But ultimately, what it is going to come down to is it is... They are doing this when the Pac-12 is probably the best the Pac-12 has been in a very, very long time. And it's it's going to be very fun to see Michael Penix against some of these other teams. Points will be scored in the Pac-12. Uh, and I'm, I'm just so fascinated to see in a couple of these big matchups what those games end up looking like. But with the experience in the offense and how they're playing right now, they just look they look a little bit different than teams like like Oregon or USC do at the moment. Or Wazoo, for that matter, probably can be included in that tier. Uh, yeah, they've, they've earned their way in there. I was thinking the other week, you remember the cracking curse? Yes. Part of the cracking curse was that Jake Hayner was unable to transfer to U-Shop. <laughs> and it really reminded me of, you know, there's the parable about the Chinese farmer who, you know, says was everything is good fortune or bad fortune, maybe so. And like, look, I think Jake Hayner would have done really well at UW. We would have had a tremendously fun last season, but he wouldn't have had two years of eligibility. So no matter what, Hayner not being able to come to UW has ended up a huge win for the Huskies. Real, a real impressive, uh, you know, reminder to regress your opinions to the man. That's that's the other Pelton Cass golden rule. Regress your opinions to the mean. Sometimes we need to have that ourselves. Oh, uh, for sure we do. You might need to on this very podcast about the Seahawks. Oh, that Seahawks team is... We should just appreciate right now we have... They are a fun team. How about that? They are. Yeah. We should appreciate that the Seahawks have a fun team for the first time in a long fucking time. It, was it doesn't a day feel when... like a goddamn chore to watch the Seahawks. It was a day when a lot of teams struggled to score points around the NFL. I do, I do like the that you were not complaining one of them. to me about offense around the NFL when a team scored 70 points. Well, okay. One of the teams hogged a lot of the points for themselves. <laughs> I'm glad Miami is not on the schedule. Uh, that's that's the one offense doing better than UW's offense right now is the Dolphins. 
but regress your opinions to the mean, but also have fun while you're paying attention to this because yeah. we've talked about that before. Right now, this Husky team is probably the most fun we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, something like that. And I think we should just be very, very happy to see it. You have no idea how things are going to go in the future. Everything is good fortune or bad fortune. Maybe so. Russell Wilson gets traded. All of a sudden, you have Devin Witherspoon. And <laughs> suddenly our view of the Wilson trade is even even more positive than it was two weeks ago. Jake Hayner, I called him a bust in a podcast. <laughs> you did. Yes, that's true. Jake, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> to be clear. Anything said during hot takes cannot be taken seriously. Unless it's right. Uh, Jay Kaner can't sign with the University of Washington. We have Michael Penix, the greatest quarterback in University of Washington history. So uh, the Pelton Cast golden rules are you never know how you're going to respond in this situation until it happens. Regress your fucking opinions to the mean. What a weekend, though. Well, please don't regress your opinions of the Pelton Cast to the mean unless they are negative. Or do. Again, yeah, I think you probably have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We will be back again on Thursday, talking about the rest of the week in Seattle sports, previewing the week that it's had. Look forward to talking to you and answering, having not one, but two listener emails this week. Oh, my God. Okay. The people are talking. Wow. All right. Is this pizza is it pizza related? One of them is pizza related. Okay. Is the term ambiguous Midwest pizza coming up again? <laughs> Sadly, no. That's, so much that is, that's, the third, that's the third Pelton cast motto. Someone should change their fantasy football team name to ambiguous Midwest pizza. Ambiguous Midwest pizza. Wait, I might do that before this is posted. <laughs> On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.